up, everybody? This is Sarah, your host of Talk to Japan Podcast, a podcast about the 90s, everything you love about the 90s and more. Hi, everyone. It's me, Sarah Eriks, here in the room with me. Um, we're both feeling a little under the weather. Weather. <laughs> I um, I got my second dose of the vaccine uh, a couple days ago. He just got his um, first. He got the J&J, one and done. So um, we're a little more quiet this week. Um, so I am doing this episode completely by myself. Um, and it's good because I really uh, found this to be a really kind of um, interesting and um you know, sad and also kind of cool, inspiring topic. Um, yeah. So we're talking about Anna Nicole Smith this week and, uh, there's a quite a bit to say about her. We could talk about so many different angles to Anna Nicole Smith. We could talk about her legal stuff that she went through. We could talk about her modeling um, career and her playboy career. We could talk about, um, you know, her reality TV show. There's just a lot um, that she has to offer. You know, I think Anna Nicole Smith is a really interesting case study of, um, you know, just kind of womanhood and owning your power as a woman um, in the 90s. So uh, really excited to dive into this with everyone. Before we get into the topic, just wanted to make sure that you are following us on social media. TTTH pod on Twitter, talk to the hand pod on Instagram. You can find us at talktothehandpod.com or email us at talktothehandpod at gmail.com. Also, please make sure you leave us a a five-star review really helps us out. Um, we have a couple more days of April, so make sure you get that in before um, May 1st, and uh, we, you'll be entered to win our TTTH pod giveaway. We'll announce the winners next week, and next week we have a fun episode too coming your way. So um, so yeah, you don't want to miss out on that. Leave a five-star review. Make sure you put your name um, or leave a comment in your five-star review so we know you're screening and can shout you out um, next week. Um, yeah, I think that's it for today. So let's, uh, talk about Anna Nicole Smith, shall we? So Anna Nicole Smith, I will refer to her as Anna, was a model and public figure in the nineties. She was really well known for her, um, 1993 Playmate of the Year title in Playboy. She was really well known for her modeling contracts with guests, H&M, Heatherette, and Lane Bryant. Um, and she was also really well known for her legal troubles and, kind of a lot of different troubles if you think about it. also want to give a little content warning here um, that we are going to be talking about her substance um, abuse issues and as well as um, sexual and physical abuse. We don't, I mean, I don't want to get too heavy into it, um, obviously, but we will talk about it because it's part of her story. Anna was born Vicky Lynn, Vicky Lynn Hogan on November 28th, 1967. She lived in this little town called Mejia, Texas. And Mejia was like kind of just this little teeny tiny town where comprised of maybe a couple thousand people. Um, there was no movie theater, no Starbucks. The biggest thing in town was Jim's crispy fried chicken. That's where she was raised. She, she was raised, she grew up there. Her mom was 16 years old when she got pregnant with her. Um, and, uh, Anna was raised by the single mom. Um, and she was also abused physically and sexually when she was a child and she was very damaged from it. Um, but she knew that she was bigger than her surroundings. She was a big fish. Um, and she knew she was ready to get out, but she grew up in this little town, Mejia, Texas. Um, she worked at Jim's crispy fried chicken. She said that when she used to work there, she would sit in, um, you know, 
behind the counter and just watch the traffic go by and just daydream. And she would just think about life outside of Mejia, Texas. And I mean, ultimately, like I just picture her kind of like the the Disney princess kind of trapped in her little her little tower, just daydreaming about what was beyond the, you know, her little kingdom is how I kind of picture her. She was a really sweet kid, um, got bullied a lot. So she actually dropped out of high school at age 14 in 1982. So when you think about Anna Nicole Smith, think about like the context, her context of she has barely a sophomore year education. She just, she couldn't handle the bullying. So, um, so she drops out. 14 years old, 1982, sophomore in high school. In 1985, a couple years later, she married her high school sweetheart, Billy Smith. She was 17 years old. He was another high school dropout. And she had, um, she got pregnant with her son, Daniel, a year after when she was 18. And I was watching um, a uh, documentary about her. And I'll, I'll put the links in the show notes for all the sources uh, that we used. Actually, it was just too. Um, but we, uh, but she was in this, um, documentary where she just describes her life and she was so lonely in Mejia and she was so lonely, even though she was married and she had friends and she was with her mom. Um, she decided to ha- to get pregnant because if she said, if I have a baby, I'll never be lonely again. So she had her son, Daniel in 1986. And she, um, you know, eventually decided to leave, Dan- leave her husband, Billy. And so she moved to Houston. Um, a few years later, she was now a single mom, barely 10th grade education. And she got a job at Walmart. Um, she got a couple other jobs too, but, um, it was Walmart that she used to, uh, drive when she would drive into her job, she used to pass a strip club on her way in. And she was just kind of enamored with the dancing lady, um, neon outside of the, outside of the strip club. So, uh, one day needing a way to take care of herself and, um, you know, clearly she was uneducated. Um, she walked into this strip club and asked for a job and eventually got a job as a waitress and then as a um, dancer in this particular club. She was really terrified. Um, She actually talks about at first about how she was just really, really terrified for this lifestyle. She was just kind of green to it. She was just this really sweet girl. And then this was kind of a cutthroat industry. It was, you know, you grew up fast. uh, You saw people's dark sides. Um, and she was a very introverted person. She didn't know she was doing the right thing. And she was also really ashamed of her of herself. Again, you know, we talk about this internalized, um, you know, culture of in the 80s and the 90s of just being ashamed of your body. And she just didn't really know. Um, and she was horrified of, of kind of the attention she got for it. And she didn't know she was doing the right thing. But really, it was the only option she thought she had. Um, so she's dancing. Um, there's a, Houston was kind of known back then too, for having a lot of, um, what they call gentlemen's clubs. They also, um, I, you know, part of this documentary, they talk a lot about how Houston, um, was really well known for, you know, the women getting a lot of breast augmentation surgeries. Um, and one person in that documentary says, you know, in Texas, like people were always making themselves up. So they were always dolling themselves up. Um, so similarly, so she starts dancing. She also develops this really high pitched baby voice. And she says that guys ate that up. Um, she started making a ton of money when she kind of adopted this persona that and, and bear in mind, too, she is still Vicky, um, Vicky Lynn. She's not Anna Nicole. Um, and she is just kind of developing this persona and this caricature of herself as she's dancing and um, really kind of starting to own 
the power of her sensuality and her body and her looks. And um, so, she, so she starts making a ton of money and then she gets a boob job and starts making even more money. Um, she was basically seen at that club as just that, you know, blonde Texas bombshell. Um, she was never really comfortable. She never really felt like that was who she was, but she just kept doing it because she had a ton of momentum. You know, at one point, uh, what was really interesting is she was very um, open with her relationships. She was queer. She had relationships with women. She had relationships with men of all ages, as we will find out. Well, you know, ages, age appropriate and up. And she had a boyfriend uh, at the time. He was a photographer and he started taking pictures of her while she was dancing. I don't even know if he had her consent to do this or not, which would be an interesting thing. If anyone knows, let me know. Um, but he actually sent some pictures that he took of her to Playboy. And then the next day, at, right after they received them, the next day they called and said, you know, this girl, we're going to make her a playmate. So um, so still Vicki Smith, she goes out to L.A., does the photo shoot. And at this time, March 1992, she is um, on the cover of Playboy and she was the playmate of the month, March 1992. But everyone around her, all the people on her team, um, start to realize that she needed a new stage name. So they started calling her Anna Nicole Smith. Um, and, you know, she kind of like really her her magnetism kind of grew like wildfire at this time. If you think about the early to mid 90s, um, especially in the fashion and modeling landscape, we had the Kate Mosses and we had um, you know, women making themselves super thin and trying not to take up space and really damaging. But then Anna Nicole Smith comes in and she's curvy and she's voluptuous and she owns her body. She doesn't seem ashamed of it. When you when you look at kind of Kate Moss's body language and photography, it almost looks like she's kind of ashamed of her body. She just is hunched over. She's like arms crossed. She's trying to make herself smaller where you see Anna Nicole Smith and she's just with her arms wide open. She's posed. She's, you know, blowing kisses. She's like, you know, giving little shimmies to the camera, complete different um, side of the coin in modeling and just a breath of fresh air for people that wanted um, wanted that look. And I think the difference too is that Anna really did, really did own her body. And she, even though she was, you know, when she was dancing a few years earlier was kind of intimidated by it. Um, by this point, she started to realize exactly what her body was capable of doing. And um, it was interesting. So she actually replaced Claudia Schiffer in a guest jeans ad campaign. Um, and it's, it became very, very famous you know, quite possibly wouldn't be as successful without her in it. And that's where she became really, really um, well known. So she had moved to L.A. She took these really beautiful, sultry black and white photos, took the stage name Anna Nicole. And, um, you know, she did this this ad campaign with guests where she really rocked this like beautiful 1990s version of Jane Mansfield mixed with Marilyn Monroe. And she did a ton of Jane Mansfield inspired photo shoots. Um, she was a huge Marilyn Monroe fan, so she really um, evoked that that persona. She actually rented her house for a little bit. She said uh, at one point that she wished Marilyn M Monroe was her mom, and she really just wanted to be what she was. She wanted to be a sex symbol like her. The problem was, I think, with both Marilyn M Monroe and with Anna Nicole Smith is people really kind of saw her as like kind of a dumb blonde. And they, you know, her glamour was so, so 
played up. Playboy kept putting her in the magazine and made her Playmate of the Year in 1993. It was also really interesting um, that she was often kind of referred to as the girl from that fried chicken place in Texas. So she kind of embodied this sex symbol girl from a small town comes to L.A. and blows up as this like massive um, modeling sensation powerhouse of beauty and sexuality. And her billboards were so sexy that her and her bus stops and bench photos, they actually caused car crashes and car accidents in some places. And there were some like city councils and some groups that actually debated needing to take those down because she was that gorgeous and magnetic in them. Um, There was a sparkle about her. She was over the top in her sirenhood. She was that va-va-boom girlfriend. So she's modeling. She also gets a couple of small roles in movies like Naked Gun 33 and a half. Um, she did a few, you know, straight to VHS video movies. Um, she got mostly small, small little parts. She wanted so badly to be an actress and she didn't want to typecast herself as the dumb blonde. So she had a hard time. And, you know, honestly, I don't think she was ever really given the chance that she wanted. And that was ultimately her dream job was her dream was to be an actress, not a model. She had some troubles there. And I think that was kind of part of the 90s. If you think about like all the other women, the, the blonde women of the 90s that were really like viewed by and it doesn't really matter their hair color. Their hair color could be any color, but it was really kind of that like Jessica Simpson was a victim of it. And it, it was just people really didn't take them seriously as anything other than eye candy. Um, so that really held her back in the 90s. And then at one point, too, uh, she was on the cover of New York magazine in August 1994. And the issue was titled White Trash Nation. Um, she was in a short skirt and cowboy boots and she was eating chips. And this was kind of the beginning of where she started to get litigious. And she sued the magazine for five million dollars because she didn't authorize the use of those photos. So she starts to also realize that you're you have to really kind of control your public public persona or it can get away from you. And I think that's kind of the story that we see with Anna Nicole Smith. She didn't survive it. I mean, part of it, we we did see it with Monica Lewinsky and we did see it with, you know, Princess Diana. And I think in some respects, both of them were able to control to some degree. Um, we, I, I think the difference here with Anna is that she just wasn't able to control it. And I think, and you know, there might be multiple factors there, um, but she starts to realize at that point that Um, She's viewed a certain way and that really works against her. So I also want to take a few steps back and um, we're going to go back to Houston when she's dancing for a second, because I wanted to separate this story from the modeling and everything, because I think um, it's what she would have wanted. In October 1991, she's back in Houston. She's in Houston. She's dancing at this club and um, in comes 86 year old petroleum tycoon J. Howard Marshall. This man was worth one point six billion dollars. He had a um, pretty high stake in Coke Industries and, you know, was a very, very wealthy, wealthy man. He was married for for decades. He had kids. Um, his wife had uh, was suffering Alzheimer's in the 80s. Um, and while she was sick, he had kind of struck up a friendship, I guess you would say, with a dancer. Um, and this particular dancer, he would give her massive checks, romantic notes. As far as I know, no sexual relationship, but it was more just a kind of a partnership, just a um, a loving friendship between two people. She, this particular dancer, they were together for 10 years. She died on the operating table while she was getting a facelift. And um, how, 
Marshall was very, very lonely, um, really, really lonely guy. So he goes into the club that Anna's working at, uh, Vicky at the time is working at, and sees this gorgeous 24-year-old Texas blonde bombshell. Um, so he starts, you know, strikes up a conversation with her. And she really respected him and they became friends. Uh, she called him every single day. He called her. They she really kind of saw him, saw him at the beginning as a grandfather figure. They would spend tons of time together. They would have phone calls together. They would um, really just had a, a really interesting relationship. They really needed each other. She was, you know, you know, she had past trauma that she was was holding on to. He was lonely. It was the end of his life. Um, they, he just really wanted someone who was fun and, and just, just full of life and full of sparkle. And Anna was it. And Anna needed, needed stability. And he offered that stability. Um, Marshall had a son named Pierce and Pierce was probably in his fifties or so. I don't actually know how old he was, but I want to guess he was in his fifties and he hated this relationship. He absolutely hated this relationship. He tried everything in his power to get his dad to, um, walk away from his relationship with Anna, but he, but Marshall couldn't do it. Like he just couldn't do it. He just loved her so much. So he actually proposed to her a gazillion times. I would say he proposed to her after a week of, of knowing Anna. And she said, no, she, like I said, she was actually in several relationships at the time he first proposed to her. When he first met her, she was in a relationship with a woman named Sandy, who she was um, very, very head over heels in love with. They lived together, had a very loving relationship. You know, I don't know how long she was with Sandy, but they, you know, he was, she was very serious with Sandy when she met uh, Marshall and but they she kept this friendship in this relationship with him and he would give her jewelry and horses and houses and cars and boob jobs <laughs> and she was really worried I think one of the things about it was she was really worried about being a gold digger she didn't want to be a gold digger so she held off of this romantic relationship for a really long time she said no to marrying him because she really wanted to make sell make something of herself first she didn't she didn't want people to think that she was in this for his money. She was in this for that loving stability and that kind of grandfatherly figure. And she wanted to make some, make something of herself first. She didn't want to be a gold digger. So she continued to say no when he would propose. So, so fast forward, uh, to June, 1994, can't even get out of his wheelchair. Um, at this point, he's 89 years old. He proposes to her at Red Lobster, his favorite restaurant in Houston. And they get married in June 1994. When right after he got they got married, she was living in L.A. at the time. He was in Houston. She would fly back and forth to see him. Um, the media took it as a detective story in their interviews with her. Is she a gold digger or not? Um, no one. I You know, part of this documentary that in hindsight, we see that no one really considered that it was. A, a viable option that two people were just lonely and found each other's company enjoyable and just maybe had a modicum of love and respect for each other. No one really considered that. So that's kind of, you know, sad and frustrating. They did consult a fertility expert, but it, you know, doesn't happen. He's 89. She's 26. At this point, his son Pierce is absolutely freaking out about the money that he's going to inherit um, when Marshall inevitably dies because he is 89 years old. Um, so at this point, Pierce hired detectives to watch her to, you know, make sure she doesn't do anything shady. She's in L.A. He's in Houston. Six months after they got married, um, Marshall got sick. 
pretty sick. And Pierce gets guardianship and revoked Anna's allowance and stopped paying her bills. And she was only permitted to see her husband for 30 minutes a day. Um, If you see any interviews of her describing this time, she was heartbroken by that. She just wanted to see this man that she has so, so much love and respect Um, she just wanted to be there to comfort him and she wasn't allowed to see him for more than 30 minutes a day. So she was heartbroken. She couldn't see him. And 14 months after they got married in August, 1995, Marshall died at 90 years old. And this is when the problems between Anna and the family get legal. First, it was about what to do with the body. Um, they even had separate funerals. I found this really interesting. They had so much animosity between Pierce and the family and Anna that they had separate funerals. Um, Anna wore the dress that she married him um, into his funeral, and she sang uh, Wind Beneath My Wings. Um, and then she finds out that she wasn't in Marshall's will at all. He left her nothing. There was no contract and Pierce got everything. So then she claimed that, you know, in return for marriage, Marshall verbally promised her half of his estate. And like I said, he was worth $1.6 billion at the time in mid nineties money. I don't even know what that's worth now, but it's probably pretty insane. So she sues Pierce. And Pierce disputes everything. Um, So it goes in and out of courts. There's a bunch of messiness. There's detectives. There's all kinds of um, shadiness on the on the side of, you know, the estate Pierce and his uh, his attorney, Rusty, uh, all kinds of shadiness. And um, she doesn't have any money coming in. Like she's trying to make money, make ends meet with modeling gigs, but it's not enough to sustain like she was really dependent on that extra income. Um, so she files for bankruptcy in 1986. So then the bankruptcy the bankruptcy judge gets involved with the litigation with the estate messiness. Um, and they find out that Pierce was being super shady with his lawyers and actually cheating her out. She went through so much with that lawsuit. I just have to say they bullied the crap out of her um, when she was on the witness stand. Um, just in general, the paparazzi, just the cameras never stopped rolling. It was like her life was one long soap opera, like one living soap opera. Um, And it was just one thing after another for her. In September 2000, an L.A. bankruptcy judge, after finding that Pierce was being super shady. And remember, this is in California. We're covering two states here. We have California and Texas. L.A. bankruptcy judge awarded her almost four hundred and fifty million dollars. And that was the amount that Marshall's interest in Coke Industries rose in value during their marriage. Um, But then in 2001, she was back to nothing when a Houston judge basically affirmed the jury's findings that she wasn't entitled to anything and that she even owned a million dollars in legal costs. So then then everything we have California, we have Texas, everything goes to federal court and it works its way all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court. And I don't want to get too in depth with this because this is in the 2000s and we're talking 90s here. But I do think it's really interesting to note that um, that her particular case went all the way up to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court ruled that she they couldn't do anything in terms of her portion of the estate. But what she could do is she could pursue a share of it in federal court and she could do this in the lower courts. And that was a big thing in her in her favor because it, it allowed her to keep pursuing this and it didn't close the book on her. RBG, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, wrote the majority opinion, and it was a unanimous decision. And I just think it's really cool that we have Ruth Bader Ginsburg, again, coming to the defense of a woman 
um, getting what's rightfully hers. So she was in court battles for 11 years. And as you can imagine, it really did ruin her mental, physical, emotional, spiritual health. I mean, by the end of her life, she, um, you know, at 39 years old, she had spent most of her years fighting, (laughs) really fighting for herself and for to get what was rightfully hers and to get to, to be taken seriously. And uh, it really took a toll on her, on her physical body. Um, at this point, I also would mention um, that she had, she was in tons and tons of pain. She had, um, you know, those years of breast augmentation surgeries really created a ton of back pain for her. Um, she was in physical pain. She, she just was just had trouble sleeping, all kinds of issues. And so she was on a pretty um, strong cocktail of substances and prescription drugs, such as Vicodin and Xanax and methadone um, that she used to control the pain. And back then in the 90s, it was much more freely given out. There wasn't as much of a stigma among doctors or you know, doctors didn't hold back like they did. And she actually had a personal friend who was a psychiatrist that used to write the prescriptions for her. So throughout the 2000s, um, she, you know, kept herself busy through a variety of of ways she had um, in the early 2000s. She had her own um, reality TV show on E! called The Anna Nicole Show. This was at the very beginning of the reality TV boom, like the the era of, you know, the newlyweds with Jessica Simpson, Nick Lachey, um, the Osbournes, uh, and then there was Anna Nicole. She had two seasons of her show, um, and it wasn't renewed for a third, but it was kind of like people, it was, it was kind of a spectacle. And it's Looking back at it, it's it's kind of sad. Um, people watched it as a spectacle rather than like kind of an insight that you might see nowadays with something like Framing Britney or, or any of those documentaries or docuseries. Um, and I think that might be the difference in a reality show versus a docuseries. But I don't think her show would get made today. But this was the beginning of, you know, the reality TV boom, 2002. Um, she also uh, did a bunch of notable partnerships with things like Trim Spa, where she lost 69 pounds. There is a really famous video of her at the American Music Awards. Um, she was presenting or or something, and she was clearly not sober. Um, and she got ridiculed for it. Like, she just got dragged through the press and the media by it. And that video clip is shown over and over and over again. And if you watch it, it's a heartbreaking video. She's clearly not okay. And at this point, this is when she meets Larry Burkhead. And Larry Burkhead, she she met him at Kentucky Derby. He was a photographer. Um, she also had a relationship with her attorney, um, Howard K. Stern, not the Howard Stern you're thinking of, but um, Howard Stern, she had a relationship with him. And like I said before, she was queer and she was very open in her relationship. She, she had multiple partners at once, but she was really in love with Larry Burkhead, just absolutely head over heels with him. And Howard was more like in love with her from what I could tell. In 2006, she, or I guess it's 2005, she learns that she's pregnant. And um, she heard from someone, I don't know who it was, maybe it was Howard or someone in her in her inner circles that how that Larry Burkhead was just after her money. So she picks up and leaves and moves to the Bahamas with Howard K. Stern. Her son, um, Daniel, stays with her friend. So she gives birth in, via C-section and uh, Howard Stern filmed the whole thing uh, when she gave birth and sold it to the media. Of course he did. Um, and while she's in her hospital bed, 
recovering from her C-section, her son, Daniel, the, you know, if you remember, like she, everything she did was for him. She just absolutely loved her son, Daniel. This is the one she, the, the baby she had because she didn't want to be lonely. And she just, she even says several times, everything she does is for Daniel. Just, she just absolutely adores Daniel. Daniel's about 20 years old at this point. Um, he flies down and joins her in her hospital room. You know, it was like her third day after giving birth, the nurse comes in to uh, see, you know, to see how they're doing in the room and notices that Daniel is not breathing. Um, he's at her bedside. He's laying there. It's like nine in the morning. Um, she's asleep. Anna's asleep. Baby's asleep. And the um, nurse notices that Daniel by Anna's side is not breathing. Um, and so, you know, he gets rushed off and, um, and he actually sadly passes away. It's discovered that he has a like a few um, different drugs in his system, like Lexapro, which he was actually had a prescription for Zoloft, which I think he had a prescription for. He took as needed and methadone, but no one really knows how he got the methadone. Um, and she was on methadone. So that there's no, it's very suspicious. Um, his death was considered suspicious for a really long time, but it destroyed Anna, just destroyed. Like here she was giving, she always wanted a little girl. She wanted to, dote on a little girl and she had this son that she adored. He was down there with her. Her It seemed like her life was, was exactly how it was supposed to be. And as she's celebrating this birth of this beautiful little girl, her son dies. Um, and it's so questionable. No one really knows what happened. And then at the time as well, <laughs> she gives birth to this beautiful baby girl and four guys say they were the dad. There was a paternity question. Still, four guys were saying that they were the father. Um, and it was a big deal at this point, too, because at the time she said that she had frozen Marshall's sperm and that it could be his. And if that's the case, the, bill, the baby would be eligible to inherit millions and millions and millions of dollars. So this there the paternity question was a big one. Of course, it was Larry Burkhead that said he was the father. He filed a lawsuit to establish the paternity. Um, and meanwhile, Daniel is buried in the Bahamas. She was so devastated. She blamed herself. Um, and me, and she's also going undergoing this legal battle with a bunch of different dudes about who is the father of her newborn baby girl. The Bahamian birth certificate recorded the father as Howard Stern and, and the U.S. judge ordered a DNA test. Um, so she is in the Bahamas at this point. Um, you know, like I said, she was on lots of different medications. Her psychiatrist friend flies down, writes her prescription for chloral hydrate to help her sleep at night. Sometimes she would just pick it up and just the bottle and just chug it. Um, and at this point, she she just wants to be on the open water. Like, that's all she wants. That's why she moved to the Bahamas. She just wanted to be in the water away from the paparazzi, away from the media, away from everyone's expectations of her. So Howard finds a boat online and it's in Florida. So they decide to go to the bah from the Bahamas to Florida to go by the boat. Before she leaves, she gets a shot of HTH and B12 to maintain her weight because she has this insane pressure to keep her body as, you know, looking like it did. She went through that major weight loss all the surgeries, all every, I mean, there's so much to it, so many layers to this body dysmorphia. But so she gets a shot of the HH and 
B12 on her left side. And on the plane, her left side of her body starts to hurt. By the time she gets to Seminole, Florida, Seminole County, Florida, she gets to the Hard Rock Hotel um, in Hollywood, Florida. Her, her left side is swollen and she has 105 degree fever, which if you're an adult and you have 105 degree fever, like that's life threatening. Like you need to go to the emergency room now. Um, and she kept saying, no, she did not want the press to find out that she was there and she didn't want it to turn into a headline. So she kept saying, no, um, she got really, really sick. She wasn't eating. She wasn't, she was sleeping a lot and there was a really weird smell. They all noticed there was a weird smell coming from the side of her body. It was really swollen, really, um, different colors on the third day. Uh, Howard went into the bathroom, saw her sitting in an empty bathtub and noticed that she was really, really confused. Um, they told her to go back to L.A. and, and you know, get some real professional help. She didn't want to go <laughs> at this point. Um, this was when they had uh, the actual appointment for Howard and um, Anna to go see the boat that they were supposed to buy. Anna obviously was was way too weak. Howard, for some reason, kept the appointment to go see the boat. So he leaves to go see the boat and her friend comes in and notices that she's not breathing for 38 minutes. No one calls 911. And there's still questions. Why did no one call 911? She was there with an entourage of her friends. No one called 911 until until they had to, I guess. When the paramedics get there, they take her off to the hospital in an ambulance. The doctors there discover that she's on 10 different medications that her friends, uh, her friend prescribed. And there was, of course, there was a media blitz that followed her there. She passed away in the hospital at 39 years old. It's still a question why no one called 911 uh, sooner. And they also discovered during her autopsy that she had thyroid disease, which causes weight gain and all of that stuff. So her struggles were actually from a physical diagnosis and she didn't even know it. And then there was legal legal battles of where she should be buried all the while, all the while still legal battles about who the father is of her newborn baby girl. So like I said, the U.S. judge ordered the DNA test. And so following her death, they asked for an emergency DNA sam sample to be taken from her body and it was denied, but they preserved her body until February. You know, all of the, the tests went through and they find out that Larry was established as the father. Um, Howard Stern, after Anna died, was the executor of her $700 million estate. Um, but Howard kind of just bowed out and, and realized nothing in this fight was was um, favorable to him. So he uh, he basically had to teach Larry how to care for this baby. This baby's a few months old at this point, um, and he was supportive. So he was still the executive of her estate, but he taught Larry how to care for the baby. Larry is now a single father taking care of his daughter, Danny Lynn. Yeah, it's it's just truly insane. Like she had legal battles even after she was dead, like like legal battles just followed her. And she all she was trying to do was was be happy. All she was trying to do was have her perfect life. That's the story of Anna. Um, it's interesting that when um, when she was when they were deciding where she should be buried, the Bahamas or in Houston, um, the judge actually cried on the stand, which is a very uh, rare thing because judges don't usually do that. <laughs> but this particular judge did cry because the weight of her story was just so heavy and he wanted her. He wanted to do right by her. Um, so he decided to let let them bury her next to her son in the Bahamas, next to Dan Daniel, her son in the Bahamas. She is, that's where she is currently buried and her legacy lives on. And I wanted to just briefly touch on her legacy. 
I know I did talk a lot about the 2000s and even some of the 80s, but I think of Anna and when I think of Anna, I think of her in the 90s as this bubbly, sparkly, beautiful blonde bombshell. Um, I think that's what she would have wanted us to see her as, not the 11 year legal battle uh, war torn Anna that we see um, in the later years. But just that sparkly human butterfly um, from Texas, this beautiful blonde girl who had a dream um, working in a fried chicken. The one place in her little town in Texas, the fried chicken stand, stand, sitting behind the register and watching the traffic go by, knowing that there was a bigger world out there for her. Um, that's the Anna I think we should remember. And then the one that made it for herself. And I, you know, I purposefully cut up her story from the modeling and acting first and then her marriage to Marshall because I think that's what she would have wanted. She would have wanted us to see her as making her own name for herself separate from her husband. And I think, you know, the the way that her husband played into it was definitely those legal battles in the later years. But still, she was fighting for herself. And I think we could take that from her legacy as well. She's one of those women in the 90s that I think of when, so I was a girl growing up in the nineties and, you know, as an adult, as a 33, almost 34 year old woman. Now, um, I, I rewatch a lot of those movies and ad campaigns and read the books and listen to the music and listen, you know, all, all those things I'm, I'm taking in now for this podcast, for my own curiosity and for my own nostalgia. And I'm noticing that there were a lot of women that I had, to role model what it meant to own your power. And Anna was one of them. Um, I, you know, I was watching Beautician and the Beast the other day or a few weeks ago, and it was like Fran Drescher's character really kind of kicked that, um, that epiphany to me that, you know, there were the Ross and Rachel situations of the 90s. And if you need my context on that, you can go listen to the Ross and Rachel episode from last month. Um, but there were a lot of women that we as girls and femmes grew up watching them embody this confidence and embody owning their owning their bodies. And, and Anna was one of them. Um, you know, I don't want to glamorize what she went through and all the hard times she went through. But looking back on her now, it's remarkable how the kind of name that she made for herself in a time when women were scrutinized over everything. And she did fall victim to that scrutiny. She did. I mean, she was never really taken seriously like she should have been. Um, and I think people did her wrong for that, but it's remarkable. She really did own herself. She didn't survive it. Um, sadly didn't survive it, but she's one of those figures of the nineties that I think shaped how we as women or femmes carry ourselves today. And I don't want to speak for all women and femmes, but I think, for me, at least, I was I was really um, inspired by her to not be afraid of my own sexuality, of my the power of my body, the power of owning our bodies and owning our sexuality and owning what we have to contribute to the world. And 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 I don't want to also you know say that our bodies have to look a certain way. I think I think that's another thing that another caveat to this story is that you know when Anna was just being herself and just embracing herself and just you know being that that voluptuous va-va-voom um, woman in in a society that that was really unheard of. I don't want to body shame anyone. I, I think I think that's what we can take away is that, um, you know, we we have power in our bodies, no matter what they look like, no matter what they're able to do or not. Like we have power in our bodies. And and I think that's what Anna really um, embodied 
literally for us. We had a lot of these kinds of women to look up to back then. I, you know, even the Spice Girls come to mind. I think of Jerry and the Spice Girls um, and, you know, probably more so in the 90s than we ever had before. And I think it took, you know, 30, 20, 30 years for those effects to start, um, you know, bubbling up. But I don't think we would have some of the, you know, Me Too mo- movements. And and I don't think we would have some of those, the the reckoning we do today about body neutrality and addressing, a, you know, like loving, it's radical self-acceptance is what I'm trying to say. We wouldn't, I don't think we would have that if we didn't have the women like Anna Nicole Smith um, in the 90s. So um, yeah, that's my thoughts on Anna. Um, I want to hear from you though. Like, do you have any thoughts on Anna Nicole Smith? How do you remember her? Um, Do you remember when she was going through all the legal battles? Do you remember when she died? I remember when she died. I mean, it was tragic. I was so upset by it when she passed away. Um, I think I was, I I think I knew at the time um, just how, how sad it was at the end when she was just trying to get away from it all. And people still we're still following her and still trying to, you know, get a peek inside of what was going on. Was she a gold digger or not? Like that, I mean, who's the father, all those things. Like she just had so much, um, she just had a lot of scrutiny. And, um, I, and I remember when she passed away, uh, when, you know, in the two thousands, um, I remember that myself. So that had an impact on me as well, but I want to hear from you. What do you think? What are your thoughts? Let me know. TTTH pod on Twitter, talk to the hand pod on Instagram. You can email me at talk to the hand pod at gmail.com or visit our website, talk to the hand Um, yeah, I'm going to leave it there. If you like what you heard today, please leave us a five-star review. We would greatly appreciate it. And don't forget to leave a comment so, um, we can enter you in our TTTH pod giveaway, which we will announce the winner for next week. Do not miss our episode next week. I will have my mom on for a very special Mother's Day episode. So if you want to hear Mama Spurlock in action, talking about the nineties and what it was like, tune in next week. (laughs) And until then... We don't have to mask up if you're fully vaccinated. So get vaccinated, everyone. We just did. It's, you know, do it for yourself. Do it for your loved ones. Do it for everyone. Wear a mask, socially distance, and be excellent to each other. Thanks, everyone. Have a great week.